You can go ahead and turn over in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 6. We're getting close to the end of this great chapter. It's a really, really long chapter. It is full of wonderful, beautiful teaching and more than its fair share of what you might call bizarre statements that Jesus makes. We're coming to one of those this morning. Uh, Before we do that, I want to give you a sort of trailer for what you can expect the rest of this month. My family are, and I are traveling uh, on vacation and then for a conference afterwards, so you get to hear a couple of uh, Trinity's other elders who have had a great teaching and preaching ministry already in our church. If, you, if you're new to Trinity, this may be your first time to get to hear Bill Hearman, who will preach uh, to us next week. He'll be finishing up John chapter 6, and then the following week, uh, Seth Jones will be preaching for us. He's going to actually take a break from John, since we get to the end of this long chapter, take a, bre- a little breather, and he's going he's gonna to talk about a psalm. I mean, who doesn't love to hear a psalm? as a little nice break from all this dense stuff that we've been uh, slogging through together for the last few weeks. We're going to breathe a little bit and, and rejoice and worship together through the ancient hymn book of the church. That's what's coming up in the next couple of weeks. For today, we, we forge ahead in John chapter 6. And, and I mentioned already, this passage this morning includes one of the more bizarre statements Jesus ever made, at least among those that are still recorded for us. And it isn't just bizarre to our modern ears. The things Jesus says in this passage were bizarre to those who heard them. They really set up a mass defection among his disciples after they hear him say these things. And, and even in some of the earliest references to Christianity that we hear, that we have in, in letters written by Romans um, around the time of Jesus, shortly after Jesus had died, there's just one famous letter that church historians love to, to, to read through for perspective from the outside world on what was going on. This, in this letter... That was, that was trying to play up Christianity as this dangerous force. One of the things that Christianity was accused of was, was cannibalism. This ancient Roman official writing to his superior officer said, we've got to watch out for these Christians because they're eating people when they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And you can under, you're going to understand where he got that when you hear what Jesus says in the passage we're going to read this morning. Jesus says in no uncertain terms and in very graphic language that if we want to live We have to feed on his flesh. We have to eat, or one of the words he uses is basically chomp on. We have to open mouth, smack on Jesus' flesh. And we have to drink his blood if we want to live. For all the the bizarre details that we're going to come across, there is one thing that is crystal clear about this passage. It's what makes it so important for us this morning. Jesus insists that whatever it is he means by feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood, Whatever it is he means by those details, they are the key to to you living and not dying. If you want to live and not die, this is what you have to do. So for us this morning, as people who want to live and not die, we've got an incredibly important task ahead of us. We want to walk through the details of what Jesus says and try to understand them on their terms. We want to make sure that we're that we're not bringing too much to the table here that might color how we see what he says. We want to understand it as he meant it. And we want to understand what it means for us, not just in an interesting sense, but in the sense that it involves our lives, in the sense that it's the difference between life and death. We want to know what to do with what he says here. What we're going to do, what we're going to do is take three steps through this passage. I want to, very simply, hopefully this will be a clear way to come at it, I just want to do my best to explain what I think it means to feed on Jesus, what he means by that language. I want to say something about how it's possible to feed on Jesus. That's one of, one of the more, one, another 
uh, bizarre statement that comes near the middle of our passage where Jesus talks about what it takes for someone to ever want to come and eat on him. How it's possible to feed on Jesus. And then what we're promised. There's the sweetness of it. What we're promised when we feed on Jesus. So what it means to feed on him. How it's possible to feed on him. And what we're promised when we feed on him. Hopefully that's clear. We'll see if it gets any more clear as we move through it together. God help us as we turn to your word. I want to read it to begin this, begin our time together. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand with me in honor of God's word as I read from John chapter 6, verses 41 to 59. This is the word of the Lord. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except that he he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in a synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to start with what it means to feed on Jesus. Uh, it's a theme that, that got introduced last week in the passage that we looked at, at the very beginning of this section of teaching. It's a pretty long section where Jesus is, is just sort of standing back and pontificating to the people who are standing around, wondering what he, who he is and what he's about. And at the very beginning of the section of teaching is where he says, I am the bread of life, and then launches into explaining more about what he means. So what it means to feed on Jesus starts where we were last week, and and, and then bleeds all the way through to the end of the section we're going to consider this week. I also wanted to start here, though, because I feel like unless we get a sense of what he means when he says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, I don't feel like much else we're going to say about this passage is going to make sense. We really need to understand this core teaching before we can really unpack anything else. So this is where I want to start, and I'm going to, I'm going to pull out the different sections of this teaching that get to what he means by feeding on, on his flesh and drinking his blood. I think the key is in verse 35, verse 40, and then in the verses 53 to 58, 
where he talks about, where he uses that really graphic language about, about chomping on his flesh and drinking his blood. Remember verse 35 from last week, if you were here. This is what Jesus says there. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We're going to understand the more graphic language that Jesus uses later in this passage in light of what he says in verse 35. And I'm going to go ahead and just tell you what I think it means, all right? And then I'm going to show you how I get there, and hopefully we can all end up on the same page this morning. Here's what I think it means. I think when Jesus speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's using a very graphic way to descri- of describing what it is to believe in him as the source of life, or as one of my favorite Ancient church writers put it, as St. Augustine put it, the one who has believed has eaten. We're talking about eating as a metaphor for believing. So we're not talking about this literally as chomping down on Jesus' flesh or eating something that, even eating something that symbolizes his body. We're not talking about a literal eating here. We're using eating as a metaphor for what it is to believe in Jesus, to come to him for life. That's what I want to make a case for. Now, I want to make sure uh, you can see where I'm getting that out of this passage. You want to believe the passage and not take my word for it. So here's, here's where it's coming from. Here's why I think this is what he means. I, I mentioned this already. I think we're supposed to wrestle with this really graphic language in, in verses 53 to 58 in light of what he's already told us. What he tells us, especially in verse 35 and in verse 40. So, verse 35, just read it, says, this is the first time that Jesus tells anyone, I am the bread of life. And then he says, it's those who come to him that won't hunger, and those who believe in him that won't thirst. They won't, that they won't hunger means that they've eaten their fill, right? So those who come to him won't hunger. Jesus is saying, coming to me takes away your hunger. Those who believe on him won't be thirsty. He's saying, believing in me takes away your thirst, So, knowing where he's going, verses 53 to 58, I think we're in good shape if we say coming to him is the same thing as eating him. And believing on him is the same thing as drinking him. It uses the same language to describe it in verse 35 and in those later verses. So, I think that's what we're meant to to see when we get to verses 53 and 58. It seems confirmed by verses 48 to 51, too, while while I'm on this subject where he says I am the bread of life again that statement comes up again and he says that he is the bread that came down and that if anyone eats this bread he'll live forever now, now here here's another here's another point that I think will help you look at verse 40 and this is this is one of my favorite details here that I think is the most helpful to understanding what Jesus is trying to say look at verse 40 and then compare it with me to verse 54 and I want you to notice that it's almost the same sentence Almost exactly the same sentence. There's only one thing that's different. In verse 40, he talks about looking to Jesus and believing. And then in verse 54, he talks about feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. Look at verse 41. Or excuse me, verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, clear enough. We looked at that last week. Now jump ahead to verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Same sentence. What's swapped out? Looking and believing for feeding and drinking. So I I think what Jesus is trying to do is to give us a graphic, vivid sense of what it means to look to him 
in a way that saves. What it means to believe on him with your whole life. He's using a metaphor. I think it would be a mistake in this case to go immediately from this verse straight to the Lord's Supper. It's a very natural thing to do. A lot of people have done it. It makes sense. Because what I would say is that the Lord's Supper that we've just celebrated together, reading this passage to help us set up our celebration, the Lord's Supper points to the same thing this passage points to. The symbols Jesus is using here and the symbols of the Lord's Supper are both about what it means to grab on to what Jesus offers us when we believe in him. They're both about what it means to take everything that he is and put it into yourself. To make it a living reality inside you, part of who you are, part of how you see everything, so that, so that the, the truth of who Christ is starts to change you, what you love, how you understand yourself and the world, what you want to be and do. But to take this language here and say, well, it's automatically talking about the physical things we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. To say that when we, when we eat bread and drink wine, we're actually in some sense eating Jesus and drinking him in the Lord's Supper. I think it's to sort of fall into the same trap that Jesus' hearers have been falling into all through John. And if you've been with us for this study very long, you've, you'll remember one of, the, one of the first conversations that he has with anybody. is with a guy named Nicodemus, a, a religious leader, who Jesus says, you know, just because you're a great religious leader doesn't mean that you're good with God. No, you've got to be born again if you want to get into the kingdom of God. You're not good just because you were faithfully keeping the law. And Nicodemus says to him, well, what does it mean to be born again? How can I climb back into my mother's womb and come out a second time? Nicodemus was missing that, that Jesus wasn't talking about physical birth here. He's talking about spiritual birth. Same thing comes up with the woman at the well in chapter 4. She comes to him wanting water. He says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask him for living water and he'd give it to you as a well inside of you that's constantly springing up so that you're never thirsty again. And she says, that'd be great. I wouldn't have to come back here and keep hauling water out of this well. And Jesus says, Jesus has to go further with her because she's missing the point, right? It's not about physical water. Same thing happens when he feeds 5,000 people earlier in our chapter. He gives them food out of nothing. And they come to him wanting more. And he talks about wanting the food that won't perish instead of the food that perishes. They think he's talking about literal bread and he says, I'm not talking about literal bread. I'm talking about me. I am the bread of life. I think it would be a mistake to think that Jesus is saying here we literally eat anything that has to do with him. That, that literally eating, even something symbolic like bread or drinking wine, puts Jesus into you and automatically saves you. He's been arguing against that all through this book. There's no like automatic ritual you can do that makes you good with God. It's a condition of your heart. It's about loving what he loves, about, about wanting what Jesus promises you, the forgiveness and cleansing that he can give you no matter who you are and what you've done. It's a condition of the heart. So visualize eating Christ as taking him and what he represents into yourself so that it's part of you. So that, here, here's one helpful distinction that I've heard uh, someone make before. So that, so that what Jesus promises, that, that his life, his flesh, given for the life of the world, his sacrifice of himself, what it would mean for you to take that into yourself, to, to, to eat it so that it's in you and part of you, is to make it a kind of belief that isn't, that isn't uh, just interesting to you. You know, I have lots of beliefs in my mind that are, that are interesting to me, but don't really have an effect on my day-to-day life, right? I believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States, but I don't think about that very often. It doesn't really shape who I am, how I understand myself, what I want to do with my life. 
It's not what, what, what one has called a self-involving belief. Here's another analogy I've used before. If you, if you hear on the evening news that somebody's house burned down, you know, in, in let's say, in Brentwood, well, that's going to be interesting to you, and you might believe that it's true. You know, now you have that as a belief, part of, your, uh, part of what you think. But it's not self-involving, right? You're going to turn the TV off and probably forget about it. But let's say you're driving up to your home and you see the smoke and you hear the sirens and you see the lights and you realize that it's your home that's on fire. Well, well that is a self-involving belief. That, that, that brings you into a, a new reality, right? You've got a lot of work ahead of you to try to navigate what it's going to mean to get the insurance company to fix your place, to replace all the stuff that's burned. You've got to figure out where you're going to sleep that night. It's self-involving in a way that the other belief isn't. And Jesus wants our connection to him and what he says he offers us to be self-involving so that it's in us. It's, it's not something you can just sort of check off on a box. Yep, I know Jesus died for me and now I'm going to move on and live my life the way I want to. I'm going to try to, to, to accomplish the same things, buy the same things, sleep with the same people that I would if Jesus weren't who he claims to be. That's, that, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is to take him into you, to eat him up, to consume him so that he changes who you are at a core level. I hope that's clear. We use, we use analogies like that all the time, to be honest. When I say that I've consumed a good book, that I've just devoured it. What do I mean? I mean it was so good, so insightful, so much joy, that, that I've taken it into me and that it's changed who I am in some sense. Like, I see things differently because I've read that book. Jesus wants us taking the truth of verse 51, that he is the bread, come down from heaven, given for the life of the world, taking his sacrifice that makes us clean and holy into who we are so that it changes how we see ourselves and everything else in our world. He wants us consuming him. But how can we be expected to do that? to hear these words and see life in them. There, there is very little winsomeness to the idea that what we really need more than anything else is somebody to die for us. What we need is a sacrifice for sin that will make us clean, that will take our sins off of our shoulders and put them onto somebody else. There's very little winsomeness to that these days. It just sounds so primitive. That that's how God operates. That that's what we would need. It seems so far removed from the real tangible needs that we all live with each day. We have very little connection to any sense of atonement. No clear reason to associate this promise of atonement with life. So we connect, for example. I think we connect with some of the stuff we discussed last week where Jesus calls on them to come to him for satisfaction because of the fact that nothing else has satisfied or could satisfy. That you can spin your wheels your whole life looking for satisfaction in money or relationships or power or accomplishment, and it just won't get you there. People, we connect with that because we know what it is to have all of these resources at our disposal, to be fully engaged in them, and yet to, have, to, to, to still feel empty, like we're missing something. We understand that. But when we hear that Jesus says, the key to you getting past your lack of satisfaction is to come to me as the sacrifice that takes away your sins and the sins of the world. 
it doesn't, it doesn't immediately connect, does it? It still seems more plausible to look to money or sex or power with a hope that one day they'll fulfill, fulfill us. Even if they haven't yet, at least it seems like they could. At least they sound good. If you're feeling that way today, hearing Jesus say that the key to you getting what, what will, the only thing that will fulfill you in life is you coming to him and taking his death for you into yourself, if you're hearing that and you're saying, I don't think so, it isn't just because you're modern and because you're advanced in your thinking beyond this sort of primitive stage. The sobering thing about this text is that, the, is that these people Jesus is talking to, if any, if any set of people in the history of the world has ever been set up to hear what Jesus says and like what they hear, it was these people. They were Jews. They were preconditioned by their whole history to expect that God was going to send somebody to save them. They were preconditioned by all of their worship to expect that sacrifice was going to be necessary, that somebody's life has to be given up if I'm going to get my life back. They got that in a way that we don't. And they still wanted nothing to do with what Jesus is saying. They didn't buy it. By and large, they leave him because of it, as you're going to see next week when Bill preaches. They had seen him firsthand. They'd seen him do incredible displays of power. And they had heard him himself speak these words to them. And they still didn't believe. So I think the question that this passage in its context raises is how does anybody come to believe that Jesus can satisfy you because he's given his life for you? And that's another key layer to Jesus' teaching. This is something we've got to work out here to fully do justice to this passage. We have to understand how it's possible to come and feed on him. How it's possible for someone who has no reason to believe Jesus can deliver or that his sacrifice for them should be the thing that gives them satisfaction and hope and peace. How someone could come from, from, from not buying it to seeing it, loving it so much that you might describe it as eating it, just consuming it. They can't get enough of it. How does that happen? How do you look to him and what he teaches and what he's done and say, yes, please, at the core of your being? Well, Jesus explains that. We've got to confront Jesus' statement in verses 44 and 45 especially. Jesus says in verse 44 that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Then in verse 45, he, he explains more what he means. He, he, he takes a negative statement. Nobody can come unless the Father draws. Flips it and becomes a positive statement. He says, everyone that the Father draws. Here he says, everyone that has heard and learned from the Father. Which is what it means for the Father to draw them. Everybody who has, they come. So what is this about? I, I want to I take this couple of verses here in two steps. First, I want to make sure we get what he means by the statement, and then I want to help unpack where he goes to support his statement. What he means when he says, no one comes, the Father draws him, and then why he points to the prophets to explain himself. Those two, those two steps, I think, are important for us before we see what Jesus means here and love what he says. So, so first, what does he mean when he says, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him? I want to first clarify what it doesn't mean, okay? It does not mean 
that only some people are invited to come to Jesus. It doesn't mean that that God sent Jesus here with an invitation only sent out to a select few. You can, get, you, can, you can see that that's not what it means all through John, but let me just point you to a couple examples here in John, in John chapter 6. In verse 35 that we've already read, he says, whoever comes and whoever believes won't hunger or thirst. In verse 37, he says, whoever comes, I will never cast out. Verse 47, he says, whoever believes has eternal life. In verse 51, he says, if anyone, not just some, if anyone eats this bread and drinks my blood, they have eternal life and I'll raise them up. Verses 57 and 58, same thing. Whoever feeds on me, whoever. So everyone alive, let me make this crystal clear. Everyone alive at this moment right now is invited to come to Jesus with the promise that if they do, he will give them life. Jesus is not saying only some are welcome to come, okay? Here's the problem Jesus is addressing. The problem is with anybody wanting to come. I mean, look who he's talking to. Again, these are the people who were preconditioned to take what he's saying and like it more than any others ever have been. And they want nothing to do with him. How would anybody come to Jesus? The underlying problem with coming to Jesus is that all of us, every human, has an underlying heart condition that will not allow us to come to Jesus. It isn't God who won't allow us. It's our hearts. It isn't that someone's held us back by some sort of physical chains. We aren't prevented in the sense that a prisoner is prevented from leaving his prison cell. What prevents us is what you might call a moral necessity, something that's in us and our desires that just won't ever run to what Jesus offers us and who he claims to be. You believe what you want to believe, and nobody wants what Jesus offers by nature. Faith always takes more than sight. And we tend to think about faith. What it takes to come to believe in Jesus is, just give me the evidence, let me evaluate it, and if the evidence is there, I'll accept it. If it isn't there, I won't. Jesus never lets us go there. He's constantly pointing to the fact that, no, you come to me whether, based on what your heart wants, not just what your mind thinks. Even what your mind thinks is shaped by what your heart wants. And nobody's heart wants to give their lives over to Christ. No one's heart wants to admit that they're too far gone on their own to do anything that can win God's favor, that they've got to take what Jesus offers or they have nothing. No one's heart wants to admit that. What he means when he says that the Father has to draw us is that the Father has to give us a new set of tastes so that when we hear the message of Jesus, it sounds beautiful to us and sweet and not horrible to us or empty. No one can come not because they're prevented by some sort of outside force but because they would never want to come. And no one can come unless God changes what they want, first of all, first and foremost. So what does it mean that God draws people to Jesus? Here, I think what it means is something different from just God inviting people to Jesus. We've seen he invites everybody. Where you are, where you're sitting, everyone else alive in the world today is invited to come to Jesus. This is talking about something else. God does something in people who come. For someone to come to him first, he's got to change them so that they want new things. What changes their taste isn't just self-discipline, 
It isn't just sort of hunkering down until it tastes good. It has to be an injection of grace that changes what they want. That's what Jesus is saying. That if our, pro- our progress towards God has to start with us, it won't get anywhere. We won't even take a step. And for us to come to Christ, not only does God have to offer us Jesus, he has to draw us to Jesus. He has to grab onto us and pull us in, not kicking and screaming, not against our will, not in shackles, but because he has so changed us and given us new life that what we hear when we hear Jesus is what we want more than anything. It's a miracle, in other words, when anyone comes to believe that Jesus can deliver on his promise to satisfy and give life to those who come to him. When they come, they come as deer come to the water, as the lover comes to the beloved, because they want to at the core of their being. We understand, I think, what it is to have desires that change. You know, when I, I started drinking coffee at a really young age, maybe like six years old. Uh, it was really young. Uh, and it was like every Saturday morning I could do it. That was my thing. Saturday morning I could have a cup. And it was a lot of milk and sugar, right? So it was more drinking milk and sugar than coffee at that point. But as, my, as I grew, my taste began to change. And I began to like it straight up. Initially, I liked it straight up out of a Folgers can. Now, I like it straight up out of, you know, an insanely overpriced, uh, locally roasted, fairly grown and traded bag from, you know, you fill in the blank. My tastes have changed, right? We're used to that. Now, as a, as a six-year-old just drinking coffee, if you had given me a cup of, of Bongo Java coffee, I would have spit it out and never tasted it again. Not because you wouldn't let me have it, but because there is nothing in me that would have wanted it. My taste had to change before I would freely go to it, right? Same thing has to happen for anyone to come to Jesus, but the difference is that there's no gradual acquiring of new taste. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not like, it's not like you get a little sip here, a little sip there, and over time you sort of through discipline work yourself into a new habit. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely supernatural. It's a transformation that happens first. God gives you new tastes. So a new, what Jonathan Edwards used to call a spiritual sense. Just like the sense of sight and touch and taste that we have in our bodies, what we need is for God to give us a new sense of the things of God so that when we hear of them, we love them. That's what Jesus is saying is, is essential. That's what he means by, by the promise from the prophets that all will be taught by God. Now here I'm going to give you a little bit of a homework assignment. For this, I said, I want to make sure it's clear what he's saying when he says, no one can come unless the Father draws him. I hope that's clear. The the second thing that I I think helps us connect with it is where Jesus goes to support what he's saying. And he goes to the prophets. He doesn't cite one specific prophet. He's kind of referring to a big theme in the prophets, that one day, God was going to take care of Israel's sin problem, not just by giving them a sacrifice to, to take care of what they had done, but he was going to keep them from always drifting back into sin again. He was going to give them new hearts. He was going to, he says, write my law on their hearts. So it's not just they're hearing it, it's that they, they love it. They want to obey me because they want to obey me because I've given them a taste for that. I want you to, to take some time because we don't have it this morning and look up Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34 and read that text in light of what Jesus says here when he says, 
when he, when he cites the prophets for proof that, that only God can draw us to Jesus. Then read Ezekiel chapter 36, Jeremiah 31. Read Ezekiel 36, where God promises to cleanse us from sin and replace the idols that capture our hearts and to give us new hearts, hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stone. Same idea was already in John chapter 3 where he says, you've got to be born again if you're ever going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be born as a new person who has new tastes, new desires. This is what Jesus says. So friends, there's so many ways we could apply this. Here, let me just give you a couple zingers. If you do love Jesus this morning, give thanks to God. Because the only reason Jesus seems beautiful to you is because God gave you a taste to see, a sense of taste to see him for who he is. And friends, if you are ever tempted to think that you have some sort of insight or wisdom that those who reject Jesus don't have, if you're ever, if you're ever tempted to think to yourself, I just don't see how someone could live as if God doesn't exist. How ridiculous and stupid is that? You need to be convicted of that in the moment. And remember that you are no different than anyone else out there. This is not an elitist club for those who get it. It is a a community of those who have been given a taste to see that he is good. And here's one last zinger for you. If you're working to share the gospel with somebody who just doesn't seem to care... Maybe it's somebody in your family or a coworker, and it's kind of an ongoing relationship. And the more you talk to them, the less they seem interested. Friends, let me encourage you that they are no further from the kingdom of God, from seeing Jesus and loving what he offers than you ever were. And that there is no one who is so hardened against Jesus that God cannot transform them and give them a heart of flesh that loves what he promises them. That can happen. It could happen today. So be faithful. Now, here's the last thing I want to say. I'm going to give it two minutes. Because we've already talked about this in previous weeks. I'm going to talk about it again. Bill is next week. I want to at least point you to what we're promised when we feed on Jesus. It's a clear theme. And he beats this drum all the way through this text. Hopefully it was clear to you. What Jesus promises is that he is going to raise up everyone who feeds on him. All who come to him, who look to him, who believe on him, he will raise up at the last day. They will die in this life, but their death will not be the end. He will raise them up. Look at it. It's all over. It's in verses 49 to 51. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died, but I'm going to give you something that you can eat and you won't die. Same point gets restated in verse 54. He'll raise up whoever feeds on his flesh and believes in what he's done for them. Again, in verses 57 and 58, he, there he, he claims to be the bread that comes down from heaven so those who eat it won't die. It won't be like their fathers who ate manna in the wilderness and still died. I will raise you up. I am the bread that if you eat it, you will never die. He's not promising you won't die one death. He's promising you that your life will not be defined by your death. He's promising that he can give you something more than a life that is capped by a normal death. And friends, this is where where God draws us when he draws us. See, I mentioned earlier, 
some things about what Jesus says don't seem to hold a candle to the other things that we turn to for satisfaction. He's already told us, come to me if you, wanna, if you wanna stop being hungry and thirsty. Don't go after money or sex or power or accomplishment or whatever else it is that might, that might fire up your interests, that might give, give meaning and purpose to your life. Those things aren't gonna satisfy. Again, those things are more vivid to us. A lot of times they seem like they will satisfy way more than what Jesus says here, feeding on his flesh. If that's where you are, then, then here's what I want you to start thinking. What you need to think more carefully about is the fact that you're going to die. When God draws us to Jesus, he draws us to the promise that Jesus will save us from death. And the reason those other things that you might give yourself to that might seem more attractive than Jesus right now, the reason they're not worth your time is that think about them, each one of them. They will not stop you from dying. You can get everything you think you want out of your career and still die at the end and be forgotten 20, 30 years later. And what you need to use to evaluate who you turn to with your life is the fact of your death. And the question, can this thing deliver me from death? Jesus promises that he can. And if you're going to be drawn to God, that is where you'll be drawn. To his promise to give life to all who feed on him. It's true. He can do it. He will do it. So believe on him. And have life. Father, these words are not words we will ever believe unless your spirit gives us eyes to see and ears to hear unless we are taught by you directly, unless we hear and learn from you, unless we're born again by the Spirit, and we won't keep on believing them unless you keep on firing our hearts by them through your Spirit. So for my friends who are here this morning who are not Christians, Father, please give them eyes to see that Jesus is worthy of their trust. And for my friends here this morning who are Christians, Father, give them a faith that won't let go. Hold them to yourself because of the promises of Christ. Give them ongoing ability to see and taste and know that you are good, that you and you alone can satisfy their deepest desires and that only by Jesus can they have hope for a life not defined by death. Help them, Father, to believe. Help all of us. It's only by your Spirit that it's possible. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.